first reading is taken from Isaiah 26, verses 1 to 11. That's page 709 of your Bibles. Isaiah 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God makes salvation its walls and ramparts. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord is a rock eternal. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground and casts it down to the dust. Feet trample it down. The feet of the oppressed. The footsteps of the poor. The path of the righteous is level. O upright one, you make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. My soul yearns for you in the night. In the morning, my spirit longs for you. When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the world learn righteousness. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be put to shame. Let the fire reserved for your enemies consume them. And continuing from verse 12 on page 709. Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. O Lord, our God, other lords besides you have ruled over us, but your name alone do we honor. They are now dead. They live no more. Those departed spirits do not rise. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. You have enlarged the nation, O Lord. You have enlarged the nation. You have gained glory for yourself. You have extended all the borders of the land. Lord, they came to you in their distress. When you disciplined them, they could barely whisper a prayer. As a woman with child and about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, O Lord. We were with child. We writhed in pain, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth. We have not given birth to people of the world. But your dead will live, 
their bodies will rise. You who dwell in the dust, wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Go, my people. Enter your rooms and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the wrath has passed by. See, the Lord is coming out of his dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the bloodshed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I don't know if your brains are engaged this morning. I'm going to test you with a quiz question. I wonder if you know where these words come from. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch, epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Does anybody recognize them? Charlie. Oh, congratulations. Charles Dickens, uh, The Tale of Two Cities. I was rather hoping nobody would know that, but there we are. <laughs> Foolish of me to ask the question. It's the opening sentence of uh, Dickens' classic, a, Na- a Tale of Two Cities, published in 1859. And the title, A Tale of Two Cities, could easily be the title for our sermon today. In our series from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, we've reached chapter 26. And in the past few weeks, we have seen Isaiah prophesy against a backdrop of a world that had turned its back on God. Even God's own people had been unfaithful. All the way through the book, men and women are presented with a choice. Will we choose the way of the world or God's way? Will we go for godly wisdom or the world's foolishness? Will we choose belief in the one true God and his promises, or will we choose not to believe? Will we choose the world city, which will eventually lie desolate and in ruins, as we read in 24.10, or will we choose God's city, the city described here in verse 1 as strong, with ramparts and walls, based on God's almighty salvation? the city that will last for eternity. And before we look at the passage in detail, a reminder of what has been mentioned before, namely, that contrary to popular belief, the Old Testament, being the inspired word of God, could not be more relevant to us today. For two reasons. The first is, for human nature has not changed. And the second reason is nor has the character of God. So let's turn to Isaiah 26. It's a great help if you have it in front of you, page 709. And my first point that I want to underline is this, the precarious nature of the city without God. The precarious nature of the city without God. Look at verse 5. He humbles those who dwell on high. He lays the lofty city low. He levels it to the ground 
and cast it down to the dust. Feet trample it down, the feet of the oppressed, the footsteps of the poor. The city is lofty, not just the height of its buildings, but the attitude of its inhabitants. Its inhabitants are arrogant. Look at verse 10. Though grace is shown to the wicked, they do not learn righteousness. Even in a land of uprightness, they go on doing evil and regard not the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted high, but they do not see it. These people are unwilling to learn God's ways. They refuse the grace that he extends to them. They are blind to God's power and majesty. They have other idols which they serve. Money, success, reliance on themselves, thinking that they know it all. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes similar attitudes in his letter to the Romans. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And Paul continues that as a result of their attitude, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. In a sermon last week, Tim Mullins spoke memorably about celebrity atheists who delight in pouring scorn on Almighty God. You hear what they say, and you fear for them. Of course, people today don't have to live or work in skyscrapers to exhibit the characteristics of the man or woman without God. But the tall buildings of the great cities of the world, New York and London, Beijing and Dubai, could be seen as a symbol of the lofty attitude that God is warning against here. And the point about it is this, how precarious it all is. In my lifetime, I've seen so many surefire, guaranteed, safe and secure institutions tumble, like the insurer's Lloyds of London, which until the early 1990s you bought into as a mark of financial success and of absolute security. It still exists, but in a much more tightly regulated way after many individual names were bankrupted. Like Enron, whose office was just round the corner from here, the U.S. Energy Corporation, into which thousands of employees had poured their pension savings and which went bankrupt in 2001. And during the recent global financial crisis, I heard of a banker who in the autumn of 2007 had spent the whole of the bonus he was expecting in the following February. But, of course, the bonus never came. That surefire guarantee was no more. And not just institutions, but rulers. In verse 13, Isaiah talks about other lords beside you have ruled over us. They are now dead. They live no more. I like the bluntness of Isaiah on occasion. You punished them and brought them to ruin. You wiped out all memory of them. Nikolai Ceausescu was the head of state of Romania for over 20 years, from 1967 to 1989. His regime became increasingly brutal and repressive, 
and has been described as one of the most rigidly Stalinist in the Soviet Union. In December 1989, he ordered his security forces to fire on anti-government demonstrators. And this led to even more unrest. I watched his last appearance with his wife. I watched it on television. He was speaking from a balcony to the crowds below in Bucharest. But the crowds became increasingly hostile, and you could almost see his power and authority draining away, and he knew it, and he was appalled and shocked. A few days later, on Christmas Day in 1989, the couple were tried and convicted on charges of genocide. An hour later, they were shot by a firing squad. Truly, the city without God puts its rulers and inhabitants in a very precarious position. And one day, God's judgment will fall on all who choose to live without him. My second point is this. I want to underline the unchanging character of Almighty God. The unchanging character of Almighty God. Look at verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord, is the rock eternal. God is eternal, not like some earthly ruler whose lifespan is short, he's outside time, and he knows the end from the beginning. He is the Lord, from the Hebrew Adon, or Adonai, meaning one possessed of absolute control, or one who is a supreme master. That's why, verse 5, God has the power to humble the arrogant, to level the lofty city to the ground, to punish all wickedness, verse 14. He is the rock, a description the psalmist often uses of God. He is immovable, unchangeable, and totally secure. And as an aside, how ironic it is that the first UK bank to crash in the recession was called Northern Rock. God is holy, upright one, verse 7, whose laws are designed to bring the greatest enjoyment to human life. He is the God of grace, verse 10, who is prepared to show mercy to those who reject him. Indeed, as I said a few weeks ago, the New Testament tells us that God holds back his righteous punishment for evil because, in the words of 2 Peter, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. How different that is from how people normally think of God. He is majestic, verse 10. He is powerful, verse 11. That's the meaning of your hand is lifted high. He is, in fact, the king of kings, and one day every knee will bow to him when he comes in majesty and glory, whether they acknowledge him or not. And as we heard last week in chapter 25, verse 8, the day is coming when he will swallow up death forever. Is that how you see God? Do you see him as he really is? It's so easy in the daily grind of the office or running the home to forget who God is and what he's really like. When we are bombarded at every point, with subtle and not-so-subtle attacks on Almighty God, it's so easy for us to lose the real picture. That's why coming to church every week and reading our Bibles regularly is key. 
We need to be immersed in the truth about him, not in the lies the world would throw at us. So let's celebrate today. Let's celebrate the unchanging character of Almighty God. In an uncertain world, he is absolutely certain. So, from this chapter, my first point, the precarious nature of the city without God. My second, the unchanging character of Almighty God. I come now to my third and final point, the priceless gift of the peace of God. The priceless gift of the peace of God. And it's that famous verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord, is the rock eternal. Now, if you were to offer passers-by in a street in London perfect peace, I guess that you would have quite a few takers. For this restless, busy, hectic capital city offers many things, but perfect peace is not easily found. At first sight, these verses could simply be saying something like, if you want to know freedom from anxiety and peace of mind, trust in God. In other words, they could appear to be speaking only of the peace of God. In fact, it's much deeper than that. For here, in these verses, is encapsulated something that was to become the linchpin doctrine of the Reformation, namely, justification by faith alone. To understand that, we have to look at verse 2. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the nation that keeps faith. The righteous nation and the righteous mentioned in verse 7 are those who have put their faith, their trust in God for salvation. It's exactly the same uh, thought that we read way back in Genesis 15 when it says, Abraham believed the Lord and he, the Lord, credited him as righteousness. When you and I take God at his word, when we believe what God tells us, that on the cross Jesus died in our place for our sin, then that belief is credited to us as righteousness. We are then justified. We are treated, as someone has said, just as if we had never sinned. From now on, when God looks at us, he will see not our weaknesses and failings, but the righteousness of Christ. He will look at us through Jesus-tinted spectacles. Now, that is a huge statement. And when you really understand it, it transforms your life. To quote the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Before we become Christians, we are God's enemies, separated from him by our selfishness and sins. And we are subject to the wrath of God, which is not, as I said a few weeks ago, about God losing his temper, but is God's settled, considered anger against all that is evil, all that spoils the beautiful world he made. I thought Michael Fenney's prayers were so powerful and helpful. 
as we look at a world which is beautiful in many ways, but how damaged, how destructive man's inhumanity to man. But after we become Christians, to quote a pastor called Bob Diffenbaugh, the hostilities have ended. The one who has been justified by faith can now breathe a sigh of relief. The war with God is over. Peace has been declared. We have been reconciled to God. And so it's true that we can read in verse 12 of Isaiah 26, Lord, you establish peace for us. All that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Because we have peace with God, we can then know the peace of God. The perfect peace with God, to quote verse 3 again, comes out of trust in God and in what he has done for us on the cross. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon preached a mighty sermon on just on verse 3. Pages and pages, but it's powerful. Let me quote just a tiny section. Look upward, and you will perceive no seat of fiery wrath to shoot devouring flame. Look downward, and you discover no hell, for there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Look back, and sin is blotted out. Look around, and all things work together for good to them that love God. That, in the rather quaint words of the 19th century preacher, is what it means to have perfect peace. Here's how the Amplified Bible translates verse 3. You will guard and keep in perfect and constant peace the man or woman whose mind is stayed on you because they commit themselves to you, lean on you, and hope confidently in you. I love that. You keep those whose mind is stayed on you because they commit themselves to you, lean on you, and hope confidently in you. Now you must leave this morning encouraged by that. The offer of God's perfect peace, which is not to say that life with God is easy. In verses 16 to 18, Isaiah describes how the Lord disciplines us in ways that can be painful. Indeed, very painful. But then he goes on to declare the other great truth that is wonderfully expanded in the New Testament. For just as we heard last week in 25 verse 8 that God will finally destroy death, so here in verse 19 we have the corollary of that. God's people will know bodily resurrection from the dead. Death can no longer hold us. We can look ahead to the most amazing future beyond this life. At the end of the Bible, in the final book of Revelation, God gives us a glorious picture of heaven. I saw the holy city, God's city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And in this city, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. When you know when you really know for certain that that is what is ahead for you, nothing will be able to shake you. You will have perfect peace 
no matter what is going on around you. And you will be able joyfully and truthfully to sing the words of our final hymn, It is well, it is well with my soul. What a priceless gift this peace is. Something that can never be bought by all the money in the world. It's God's free gift to us. I began today with the words from A Tale of Two Cities. I spoke about the choice that is there for all of us to choose the lofty city of the world or the strong city of God. If you know and follow Christ, thank him for bringing you into that place of such great blessing. If you don't yet know Christ, decide that you will start to follow him, for the gates are open, verse 2. But they won't be open forever. Perfect peace can be yours today. Make that choice now. It's the most important decision you will ever make. And you'll never regret it. Because God's perfect peace is priceless. Let's pray. humbling, Lord, to see the prophet Isaiah speaking of these deep and profound truths hundreds of years before Jesus came to earth. He's sketching out what became even more clear when you sent the Savior of the world. And forgive us, Lord, as we take the bread and the wine as reminders of your amazing grace and the offer of your perfect peace that we're not overcome by awe and wonder and praise and thanksgiving. May we indeed come before you with that sense, renewed sense, perhaps for the first time a real understanding. Help us to long to live permanently as residents of the city of God. Amen.